0: Boom! And we are on. Hello, everybody. Welcome to another exciting episode of The Renegade Show. And today, I have a really special guest with me, Tomas. And he has a very interesting and illustrative career, which I will let him speak to all of us about. Uh, Welcome to the pod. Tomasz, thank you, Gavin. It's, uh, it's fun to be here. Thank you for inviting me. That's great. So, what do you tell the folks about how you ended up being in technology and really the the path that you took to get here? Because you've you've taken a lot of twists and turns in your career, which is what we would call the, a renegade move. So, enlighten us. Sure, uh, uh, with pleasure. The I think I've
1: been always drawn to technology um, I remember as a kid I was very excited about the innovation and new toys that we were getting I grew up with Eastern Europe so those toys were actually coming from Russia so they're a bit different than, than the, the ones that kids today can play with but for me I had this fascination of, of uh, this kind of other world that existed that when you discover computer games with Atari and and, and you, and you had those small kind of Game Boy type like Russian equivalent um, that we had. For me, it was something like really, I was curious, how does it work? Like how, how, how what it, where is the magic that exists within? And I think uh, um, curiosity was something that really kind of took me to technology, but I didn't initially thought that I gonna end up in technology. I actually started from a med school. In med school in Poland, and after a few years, I kind of realized that I really like it. I like, I love the aspect of helping people, but I kind of didn't like the idea that I'm gonna spend the next twenty years studying and and gonna be locked in uh, in the very specific system uh, education. And you to. I was always kind of when I do something, I like to do all the way. So uh, I was thinking that I'm gonna be a neurosurgeon or. Or a cardio surgeons, so I really thought I' gonna go all the way, and it, that idea scared me a bit, and I, I decided to to change. I and I changed, and that's that's kind of what I often do. I I, I took like a total twist, so I went actually in the fashion industry. Um, wow. total, total total incident. All my life is uh, full of those uh, funny incidents that I go somewhere, something happens, and then uh, creates the totally different path and and I'm courageous enough to kind of undertake
0: it. Before you move on, because I wanted to, I have a lot of folks from Eastern Europe, and they're very deliberate and and very sure and very uh, determinate about, the path they take, and you're kind of breaking the mold from a regular Eastern European who's really like bobbing and weaving and, in your journey. Is that a function of your upbringing or how did culture and growing up in Eastern Europe affect you? Because I'm really curious about this, so, this idea of serendipity.
1: Yeah, so, so I think it's, you're, I, I absolutely agree with uh, what you say. It is, it is not, I would say, typical. Mm-hmm. I think a big part, there's two, two big elements, I think. The first one is that as a kid, I, I had an opportunity to live in Canada for, for almost a year. I was like three, four years old. And what it created that I have those images of this amazing, very colorful world that I existed in, that everybody smiles. But then I, it, it's only kind of like a flashback. And, and then you kind of go back and your appraisal is in that in that very gray and very different with people stress and sad because of of the whole communist regime and everything else there were great things there as well don't get me wrong and and and, and phenomenal from a society perspective how how people were helping each other and uh, how, how was the sense of you fighting together against something you disagree with so that creates a great uh, camaraderie uh, among, uh, among people. But, but there was something that kind of created, I always was curious that there knew there is something better out there. Um, and I think this is one thing. The second thing, even though I, I say that I grew up like that, I grew up in a relatively wealthy family with very well-educated parents. So mm. to be honest, I only made masters and in my family, it's not even considered I'm educated, so. Really? Uh, yeah, because wow. I, uh, yeah, yeah. So this is uh, my, my dad, physicist, who actually, he, he migrated to Canada and he was part of a team building Canada Arms, So he worked in kind of a space and so fairly, fairly smart in that area. My mom was a, a dean at university in biotechnology. Mm. So, so all the, the PhD uh, academics. So, and I grew up in that environment. I grew up in the environment of of learning and being exposed to a lot of information that maybe is a bit unusual when you're young, because my my daycare was basically a research lab, because that's where my mom was taking me when I, I didn't have school or something, and she had to work and she worked long hours, and, and they were doing research. So, so, so this is kind of something that shaped a bit my. My perception, I think it, it broadened a bit my horizons and also the fact that I actually grew up knowing multiple religions. Okay. So I, I've been very closely introduced to Christianity, obviously, but Islam, Buddhism, Judaism, and, and, and kind of it, it, it creates, I would say, another dimension of interest about something that it's not, uh, it's not understood through science and that exists and it has some kind of interesting dimension and, and, and some significant value that it can offer. So I think all those things kind of impacted a way how I uh, make the decision. It kind of built a bit of a, a confidence on one side and on the other you have this crazy curiosity.
0: That but it's interesting it's interesting about the curiosity and the confidence because I would hazard to guess in the environment you were growing up in, you were an anomaly. So when we look at the life of a renegade, and a lot of people want to be a renegade, but they're afraid of not being accepted by society, by community. I, I by never... How did you? How did you overcome that? Yeah, or did it even affect you? I don't think I was paying attention to it.
1: I, wow! So, so, and I think this is because when when I, when I mentioned those three things. So, so the first is the, the let's say the being having a privilege of being raised in the family that that education, science, or things are important for you. Things are s- simple. You understand how things work, and th- and that's how they are. On the other hand, being exposed to those different religions, and I had a very my mom is very strong Christian or Catholic. Uh, My, my dad is more Muslim uh, and I had all friends and people around me that, and, and I, I found some, some power and and strength that they had. And, and, and you need to understand that this was something that was not during the communist time that you could freely express. Those were things that the system was fighting with. So, so you grew up seeing that your parents or your family are, are very opposed to it. Mm -hmm. And, and the, you knew that it's a high risk, but they still doing it. So so I think this is something that for me being being raised in my family just, just just made it natural for me that you you go after what you believe in and what you think is is important. and if you think it's right, you just do it. And and, and I, I have to admit that I never done anything in my life that I I did not feel comfortable with. I I would be the guy that four people or forty people is gonna start running straight and and I'm like, no, I'm not comfortable. I'm going to stop and I'm going to go in the opposite direction. And I, the moment those people disappear from my horizon, they disappear from uh, uh, my perception in the sense that I, I, I'm not concerned about what they, what they think. But no, I don't want I w- I to make it sound a bit like I don't pay attention to it, but it's more about understanding how life moves forward. Mm-hmm. and how certain and, and this is maybe also because I had a chance to to travel a lot that that you build as a kid those friendship that I was building but then I was coming back to my my house or my my city or my country and I didn't see those people and I still enjoy the relation I had with that but I knew that I'm not going to meet them again because it's, it's not going to happen and for me it was a very natural kind of a way uh, how, how you interact with others and you understand that they're, they're kind of a journeys that they, they at one point they overlap but it doesn't mean they're going to overlap forever and you just enjoy the moment that you have together and once it ends it ends and then if, if, if it might happen that they're going to kind of cross again but that's not something that I would be overly concerned
0: I want, to, I want to take that experience of you growing up in that rich, diverse of, of religion and thought and experience. And I want to juxtapose of what's happening today. Because when we look at the world of high technology, especially in Silicon Valley, there's a real amount of signaling that happens about certain founders who come from a certain set of universities that does a certain set of programs that look in a certain way. And a lot of the world about who you invest in and how things get invested is about fitting into a box, an ethnographic, or psychographic or or background box. And you're an experienced senior executive in a, in a well-to-do organization. How does this affect your hiring and, and decisions on people and opportunities? Because you're not You've grown up looking at diversity and yet the world today wants to put people in a box And before they can make a decision. How do you reconcile those two things? Well, so you see, And this is something that I, I think that is the beauty of technology because I
1: fully agree with you. Uh, when you look today, when you look at the US, you have a four states that basically majority of uh, investment from VC firms uh, will happen. And this is, this is and, and there is when you look at the global scale, there, there are a few countries that, that, that you're very likely to benefit from, from the fact that you're there just physically. But I think that it's actually started to change. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I'm actually very positive about the COVID-19 influence, because I think that people start to realize that innovation is not like trees that only grow on certain ground. It can happen anywhere. Uh, and 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 they and we starting and 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 we all and we had this ability, but somehow was very skewed towards uh, Silicon Valley. I mean, definitely. But you basically, you have Silicon Valley, New York. This is where kind of majority of uh, of all the investments going to happen, and that's where you're going to benefit. But I think it's changing. I think what happens with with China, and their kind of the Silicon Valley, it's it's uh, it's it's very interesting. Uh, I am very actually fascinated about the uh, technology growth in Africa. Uh, oh. I think I think I think China knows that China is investing very heavily in that area but I, I wouldn't be surprised to see a, a new startups that really manage to get a significant funding uh, get to the to the kind of a stage that they can enter IPO and they're gonna be Africa grown. I think I think this is there's a lot of investment happening in Middle East, obviously, because they realize they need to change their economy. They need to start thinking differently. And and, and just by the fact of the proximity, you have you have a lot of things, and I, I, I I'm really I, I always had a fascination about Africa. Actually, never other than North Africa, I never had the chance to see this beautiful, uh, beautiful continent. But I wouldn't be surprised to see Africa kind of uh, uh, getting its, uh, its, uh, its place on the global stage when we talk about appraisal uh, innovation. And I think that people's going to start uh, doing it because I'm very fascinated, and this is your world, so you tell me, because I'm, I'm very curious, you might have a very different point of view on this, but for me, the, the whole aspect of uh, venture capitalists is mm-hmm. it's a very interesting one. But I think it needs to pivot a bit as well
0: because
1: it's concentrated. And and because it's so concentrated on the areas, exactly as you mentioned, it's actually missing quite a bit.
0: Um, And And, 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 and I agree with with you. you. So from an innovation standpoint, folks like you, have seen the world. You've been, I think when we spoke before this, you've actually traveled in Asia, you've been in Africa, you've got a diverse background. But I think because venture capital is such a a asymmetric game, the odds of having a blockbuster are so rare that they want to, you know, minimize the signaling risk by saying, here are, you know, five white Stanford grads, and I'm not saying it's all only white male Stanford grads, but a lot of these things are really about VC founder fit. And they're looking to see if the venture capitalists and the founders have a fit. And, and that's the signaling. And, and that's unfortunate. But I'm, I'm encouraged the fact that you're actually seeing that, that it, where you sit, innovation could come from Africa and we'll potentially see a blockbuster franchise coming out from that region. But I, 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 already,
1: I already actually, I had a chance to talk uh, with some of my friends actually from mm-hmm. World. They actually consider it and, and they... They, they, and and those are kind of the people that they know how to invest. So mm-hmm. I, when I see that they're interested, and I and I have an opportunity because I'm I'm asked as an advisor sometimes to to help different startups. And I love underdogs. I have made this is another thing. I I I love putting my money on underdogs, and and there's always kind of I, I love to be uh, on that side because it's really fun to to help somebody that. Nobody sees its potential, but there is actually something that is brilliant about the, the solution that they have. Uh, and I, I can tell you that I, I've seen a lot already in obviously in Europe, in Eastern Europe, it's, it's very interesting. I mean, you look at UiPath, it's actually grew up from Bucharest. It's, it's one of the biggest RPA, RPA platform. It's, Remote
0: process automation, right? robotic yeah, yeah. process automation. process okay. automation. It's evaluated in $10
1: billion. And it started in,
0: in Bucharest. So so it's already
1: getting east. And um, I, I'm really I really think and I agree with you that there is obviously people are more comfortable with investing their money into something that they know would work in the past. But I think there's the ways of of actually addressing the needs that exist that nobody does, and then there are no better people that individuals who live in Africa, because mm-hmm. they deal with the challenges that, that we, we kind of hear about. We watch a movie. We see Leonardo DiCaprio talking to us about it. But we don't have a problem that we don't have a drinking water. And, and, and I'm pretty sure that a kid like that growing up, having access to the right tech, can mm-hmm. come up with something brilliant. Um, because he, he has such a strong internal force to do something, to help his community, to to help his family, to help his friends, that just the the desire and the drive that exists in an individual like that is by no means a match to Stanford, which by the way, I don't think the US has the best schools anyway. I think it's India. And when you look at all the CEOs that Americans hire, it seems that they like Indian education system more than American, but that's a small digression. But I, I really think that they have the, uh, something that we don't. Uh, mm-hmm. And this is the perspective, and the, the almost like a, a will, the, the power, the survival, that we don't. And I do think that we will need to, and, 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 I, and I'm just, this, this is a long-fetched guess or prediction, but mm-hmm. I, I think that we'll need to think how we become more sustainable as a society. Uh, mm-hmm. At one point, we're going to figure that you don't need 100 T-shirts because we're going to start facing much more significant challenges. And, and COVID-19, for me, it shows it beautifully. Like when I look at my spending, it's just, wow, I can actually live without going to shopping malls and buying all the new shirts and, and, and suits and everything else. And I'm like, wow, and it uh, doesn't change anything. So I really, I really think there is, uh, there is something that we should learn from from people coming from places that that they struggle because their perspective is very rich
0: I want to ask you a question being a senior executive in what you've described as applied innovation and in the space of artificial intelligence big data now there is this there's two sides of the coin, coin because you talk about technology for good, sustainable, the, the sustainable world. But at the same time, you're, and, I, and I'm and i challenging you on this, right? You're part of a group of people that believes in artificial intelligence and big data. And there is a segment of the population who is intrigued about this, but fear that these things are going to displace your job. What is your argument, right? In terms of these technologies that people are saying going to drive the fourth industrial revolution, will it displace communities of the world? Make an argument for for yeah, no, you know uh, why you believe this is good.
1: Right? It will, because- it will, it will. And and that's for me is but I think it's it's not the I don't think it's uh, I don't think it's creating the fear of it is the way to go. Because think about it like this. If you ask me in let's say beginning of uh, 20th century when 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 the cars were produced
0: mm-hmm. and
1: you ask me if the job of a of a guy who is like sitting on the horse and English my second language I don't know exactly the name of the thing it carries but the carriage the carriage you know, it's, if you ask me if that job's going to be lost and I would say yes it will be mm-hmm. but think about it how many news going to be created that are much more interesting and and, and I think this is, uh, uh, this is the same aspect. Uh, when you, in 1950s, um, I remember I was reading that people were not comfortable to get to the elevator without the windows operator, uh, the elevator, uh, elevator operator. Uh, mm-hmm. So basically you wanted to have somebody that presses button for you because you felt more comfortable. Those jobs went, went away. And I think it's the same thing is that the aspect of automation is, is not about replacing humans it's about replacing jobs that humans shouldn't be doing uh, and i and i really think that that's going to create uh, a bit of a equalizer so we're not going to be forcing people in in the countries that they struggle and kids to work and produce our shoes because that's going to be technology taking care of things like that
0: but this, but then but then the argument from some people like Andrew Yang in the US who's really saying AI and robotic process automation will eliminate certain jobs and universal basic income should be the thing that supports people who've been displaced so what's your position on 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 UBI and with the recognition that some jobs are going away
1: so so i mean i me and Andrew, AI, no comparison. So that's his vision. He's a brilliant guy. But for me, well, definitely Californian in this kind of point of view. Mm-hmm. I, 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 don't th- I don't think, I what, what I'm going to differ with Andrew here is I actually grew up in the concept of economy that had universal income. Because mm-hmm. uh, one thing in, uh, in communism was that it didn't matter if you, if you do nothing at work or if you work super hard you're mm-hmm. gonna get the same salary. because it was this concept of socialism, eh? which is exactly this concept, and it didn't work. Uh, those countries switched to capitalism. I don't think capitalism is the best way to go, but I don't think anybody came up with, with a system that is better. And mm-hmm. uh, so I don't necessarily think that that this is, this is for me a short-sighted vision or statement that it's gonna replace the jobs uh, because there 's going to be other jobs mm-hmm. when you think about it you, you you whatever we do in our life and we we bring some type of automation or advanced technology it, it creates a new economy mm-hmm. uh, that did not exist so I think that there is a there 's going to be a very important element that that society governments and and so on needs to think how you reskill, how you upskill, how you prepare the people for the change. Because there's no point of being resistant to the change. Because a change is part of us. We are a product of evolution, and as such, is is that we are a product of change. So making something that we're gonna resist another change for me, it seems illogical a bit. You know,
0: and you know, it's interesting. It's interesting what you're saying because you hit the, the the nail on the head. You mentioned the need for reskilling, the need for governments and organizations, private, public, and in, even individuals. Taking the idea of reskilling. And I want to bring this to you from a point of being a European yourself, because when we see the Western Europe and even Eastern Europe, the ability for individuals to get trained or reskilled in vocational trainings, for them to adapt to automated factories is so much more higher than what you see in North America. There's almost a gap in cultural belief around. Training, reskill, and vocational. I-, I wanted to get your point of view because I think you brought up a, an important point that the individual is responsible, but governments are also responsible. But then there is something around culture about the ability to embrace training and reskill. Yeah, I have to admit that I kind of you're right that this is appears more in North
1: America. And I yes. I remember years years back I had a pleasure to be in the BMW factory, mm-hmm. and it was the augmented human and the robot working together and mm-hmm. and for me i was like I'm, I'm a kid i'm a geek so seeing like this i was amazed and excited and like oh my god it's so cool but it was so obvious for the people there they're like yeah it's too heavy we like it i don't have a back pain problem because of it so, so it was very different <clears throat> and i think everything goes back to to messaging and mm-hmm. and when you kind of mention the role of a government is more about not scaring people but helping people Mm -hmm. Uh, And really kind of making a smart decisions that the beauty of actually the training today is Mm -hmm. that anybody can train and learn anything they want. You, you look at Andrew, Andrew, you mentioned Andrew. So Coursera, I mean, this is a great example. I mean, this is, this is the best university out there. Like what do you want to learn? You can learn from the people from industry, you can learn from the best props in the world, regardless where they are, any technology, any skill sets, you have things like masterclass and so on. So, so your access to information and ability to learn is actually unlimited. And the only thing that limits is how much time you're willing to invest in that. Like for mm-hmm. example, me personally, mm-hmm. I love learning. And through all my career, I and, and my education, I went through so many different schools. Some of them I graduated, some of just went because I was curious about something. But I learned through the whole process. And 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 that's a beauty. You can you can learn anything you want uh, without actually even a need of moving from your house. The only effort it is like pick up your your phone and uh, type a, a URL and, and, and the, the, the journey starts. So, so I think this is something that it's so uh, available to anybody. Mm-hmm. And, and I'm amazed how little people take advantage of it.
0: Interesting. Uh, yeah. So I wanted to, uh, as we wind down this episode, one of the things that you're, you're a specialist in is as well is the IoT or Internet of Things for those people who don't know what it is. And I wanted to position it in this way. There was this this Gartner hype cycle about the, the heighten of expectation and then the trough of disillusionment. It felt like IoT was at its height a couple of years ago and it was supposed to remake the world. But now you don't see so much uh, emphasis on IOT, at least in a lot of the startups coming out. What's your perspective and your hope, at least from this piece of technology, as you, as you look uh, through the landscape?
1: Well, yeah. I, I think a Gartner hyperwave is a bit like a weather prediction. It's sometimes worse, <laughs> sometimes it doesn't. And, and we need to recognize they're brilliant, but those are researchers. So it's not applied to, and really kind of... A, uh, it's a research-based approach. Yeah? So mm-hmm. uh, it's very helpful. It's, it's a, great, a great research source uh, among others, but we need to be kind of recognized that, uh, that the wave is really right. Uh, and RPA is one example, IoT is another. The, the other interesting thing, I think what's happening in the IoT space is that we haven't realized how deeply embedded in everything that we do IoT is. And as such, it's, it's not really a hype anymore. I remember back in the day, and it's we're going years, years or decades back, where the big thing about IoT was smart meters that utility companies have, that they, they're they able to really understand your consumption and, and they can communicate it through, through the network. And that was a big thing. But when you look at today, Tesla is IoT. When you look at... Uh, Anything that your phone does, it benefits from some kind of IoT functionality. When you have the smart switches in your home, when you have Alexa, this is IoT. So this is actually, to to be a devil's advocate, I have to say that actually, surprisingly, Gartner was right. It's just Mm -hmm. we haven't realized how how deeply embedded it is in our day-to-day life because everything today is IoT. Like there is no... No technology today that will not have some kind of an IoT element.
0: The we'll,
1: interesting uh, part, yeah? mm-hmm. Go ahead. The interesting part about it is that it doesn't mean that we matured enough in IoT space. We mm-hmm. have fundamental challenges with, with number of protocols with, and, and different levels of, of an IoT architecture that, uh, that we don't have a really point of view or an agreement with an industry.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, so this is, this is something that it's actually happening uh, We we don't have security standards for IoT devices, which, which should be considered as a concern because those are the things that interact
0: with us very, very closely. So still a lot of things to, to take care of in that area. So on the on the topic of IoT, and I want to ask you one one around a technology question and one around political. The technology question would be: Will five G accelerate the spread of IoT when it becomes mainstream? Will devices be more ubiquitous and fast as a as a result of five G coming to the space? And number two, should the, you, should Huawei be prevented from having access to 5G technology, as what uh, as the campaign that's being used to stop them from deploying this technology across the world? Because it looks like 5G is becoming the holy grail of the technology forefront leaders, and there are efforts to prevent. Certain countries from get or certain corporations from getting access to that. So I wanted to understand both the acceleration of IoT as a result of 5G and your point of view around technology accessibility.
1: Oh, I love, don't get me wrong, I love it. Now you really, you really want to, uh, to, to <laughs> the controversial area.
0: This is the renegade so, show. Uh,
1: so let me. I'm gonna finish with this UI story because I, I have a very uh, interesting or well, interesting. I have my own perspective on it. Sure. I I, I I hope you're gonna find it interesting. Mm-hmm. Uh, but let's let's start with the first part. Five G. Five G is. I think there is more hype around it. That there is no doubt that's going to create a change. However, I'm not necessarily a strong believer that the biggest change is going to come with five G. I have a very strong belief that that the big change will come with increasing computing capabilities and and very likely from the edge meaning that ability for us to run uh, information much more closely to where the information is actually absorbed or processed. Uh, because at the end of the day, you can have a 5G, but at the end of the day, it, there's physics, the waves, uh, travel, the max speed you can have is the speed of light. So there's always some kind of a limitation. And the longer the distance you're gonna make, regardless of how fast this highway is, it's still you need to be driving that in the car. The second thing that I'm not as convinced is that if, if you ask me and let's say I have a Tesla and, and let's say Tesla decided that we have a level five autonomous vehicle, would I really believe that I want the whole processing happening through the 5G or I want to happen at the edge at my car? And that's, mm-hmm. that's where I think is that this is something that I, I, I don't have a very... Uh, definitive point of view in the sense that, oh no, 5G definitely not going to be that big. But I think there is some other elements that that can actually improve and bring a big change to us. And it might happen at the same time, like the 5G, but I'm not necessarily seeing that that's going to be
0: as significant. Um, is there innovations around the edge, uh, technological technological innovations that you're observing that could? Amazing. It's amazing. It's basically
1: a rethinking uh, architecture of of a semiconductor processors to introduce and bring more AI capability on the edge, and 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 this is just from AI perspective. And that's very. You're talking
0: about systems on chip, SOC. That's yeah. what you're talking. So about. this
1: is. Uh, so this is this is one. Another one is really, uh, really when you think about it, when you look at the whole uh, processing, how how it happened. We and this this is what I'm really looking towards for innovation. Is we we had initial those big big, big machines, then we came up with this PC computer and Intel chip, and and then we kind of tried to improve it all over again. But things change a lot, and we're still building on something that was initially built for a very different purpose. You need fans and things like that. Seeing what Apple is doing today by switching, I don't think the switch is only because they want to control better their suppliers because Tim Tim Hook, he, Cook basically, he, he made his business, he made his name as the best chief operating officer by negotiating deals with vendors across the planet. So I don't think they have a problem managing the vendors. I think they want to have a more influence of how that architecture is changed and they go towards REM. So this is this is just 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 on the side of. Um, of of a technology, so uh, there is amazing uh, number of actually startups that that play in this space. I was actually my one of my chief data scientists sent me recently the the scientific paper, and I'm reading it, but I, I think I will need another week to really digest it because it's really very very scientific one explaining the uh, how the new architecture should look like, and I'm uh, and, and this is where I'm li- I'm looking more towards the speed of computing then the speed of networks. If I look at the big, uh, significant change in innovation. Now let's go towards Huey. The political. Yeah. Yeah, Huawei. political, yeah. Since you decided to throw me under the bus. Yes. Uh, yes. The, uh, I will take it. I will, ta- I will take it. <laughs> so I personally think that uh, the whole Huawei it's a very, very superpower type of uh Challenge that is occurring at the moment mm-hmm. I think that the china has absolutely outperformed the world in the area of uh, artificial intelligence and the and, and and we can we can use number of examples of during covid nineteen their uh, chain restaurant chains came up with fully robotic restaurants and, and it's almost start, starting to be sci-fi. And I remember me visiting China. And every time I go, I'm amazed how, how fast they evolve and, and how, how every time I go, I have a misconception about where they at. Uh, and I think what is happening is that uh, nobody actually realized that. And, and there is no other Western kind of a competitor that can match what, what Huawei did in 5G. And I think that created a bit of a panic. And, and that panic escalated, and the, the five uh, five uh, countries that are connected uh, in terms of their intelligence systems, uh, so basically Australia, UK, Canada, US, they, New Zealand, they, uh, they kind of took a stand that there is a security issue there. Yes. I, and I, to be honest, I, I don't want to go into that because the, there's so many better people than me to address this issue, but this kind of a security I can put next to the Transformer or some other tool that I have here on the, or, or the network, and and I can be able to skew some signals and, and influence it. So I'm I'm not really I'm not really convinced. I would say for, by that argument, I think mm-hmm. it's more of a of a, of a challenge of how how the western world is dealing with such a rapid appraisal of of china in terms of a technology in such advanced technology i think world was very comfortable with china being a producer and Mm. i don't think world is comfortable with china entering the Position as maybe innovator. I think that's something uh, that is shocking. And I remember before the whole 5G started, I was actually shocked because I was playing with Huawei camera on, on my friend's phone, and I couldn't believe how much better than my iPhone camera it was. And I just couldn't. I had a problem. Like I we were taking pictures at night, and I was just amazed how much tech, how much smart algorithmic capabilities were actually behind the camera and i felt a bit that my iphone which i love and i i i'm, I'm fully fully apple superfan but was not a match and and for me that's i I, th- I think i think this is much more complex geopolitical issue than it is just technology issue when i look yeah. at 5g hua discussion
0: what's your thought i i agree i think i think it's a geopolitical issue and i also believe that it's all about sovereignty, right? And at the end of the day, if this is going to be a game changer, some countries will still. It's basically in my position the last dying grip, grips of the old economies trying to hold on to power. And that, and I'm really, I'm really honored that you gave such a, a, a straight word uh, answer to this because it, there's as you as this this show is being broadcast around the world and we've got people uh, from China and from Taiwan from Hong Kong listening to this and and there's always this idea that this is a east against west and the reality is you're showing and i'm showing that it's not about this right it's i
1: don't think i don't think it should be that way it's actually yeah. it's scary if, if, mm-hmm. if anybody thinks in because i grew up in that model and i don't believe in it yeah. because at the end i wanted to come to the west and i think mm-hmm. uh, don't get me wrong i don't think i i'm i by no means i'm saying that I don't have challenges with certain things that occur in China because obviously I do because I I grew up in the system that I was oppressed and right and and I'm, i this is but but I also recognize that there is a shift of power and and again bringing COVID nineteen because it's hard not to because we all locked down mm-hmm. uh, is when you look what we did when you look at normally in I would call pre COVID nineteen world anything that was happening the whole world would be looking towards U.S. How do we deal with it? Mm-hmm. With COVID-19, China started there, but they, they introduced very aggressive approach, but it happened to be effective, something you couldn't do in Western world, but it was effective. And, and we all kind of copied it across, with the exception of Sweden, but pretty much everybody did. And, mm-hmm. and for me, it's the first example that is the first time in the world history, that mm-hmm. actually world looked towards China as opposed to US, how to deal with a problem. Was mm-hmm. that the right way or not that the history will show? But it is, a, I think, a significant event that was triggered uh, that changed a bit of a nature, that w- nature of the world that we used to uh, live in and we used to kind of operate in.
0: Yeah and I think this, this idea of one belt one road vision that uh, president Xi is uh, advocating right is driving the rest of the world which is non-west to to start embracing that innovation can come from the east that technology doesn't have to be the new cold war it can be a unifying factor and well, so the
1: fact that they they china is investing so have heavily in africa it mm-hmm. kind of brings back to our point that there is a big chance of innovation coming from Africa. You're absolutely right. They have a big backer. Uh, mm-hmm. When you look at the new Silk Road plan, well, which is more kind of addressing the Europe, but there is a leg of it that is really um, is really a focus of enabling uh, Africa. Of yeah. course, there is a geopolitical interest because the, you have access to to minerals that you need to produce advanced technologies. And mm-hmm. Africa is very rich in those minerals because it's mm-hmm. always Oil, minerals, or something, and we, we th- this is from geopolitical perspective. We always need to look like that, but but then something good can come uh, out of it, and I, I truly
0: hope it will. Tomasz, it's been a fascinating conversation. Thank you for being so straightforward and and candid with your answers. As we wrap up, what's your hope for a young technologist? listening to this podcast in an emerging part of the world. What's your hope for them and what's your wish to these renegades?
1: The only limitations that are out there is the one that you put on yourself. So that's the first thing. The world today is, it's a very different world that existed when, when kind of you and me were, were starting the whole aspect of uh, social media, internet ability to, to, to have access to the best education for free ability to present and build something anywhere in the world make it relevant for anybody in the world is amazing so you anybody basically can learn anything the the market becomes the whole planet and the only limitation is how much you really want to achieve it because if you do you don't have any limitation Market is available, uh, skills are available, and opportunities are there. So I think it's it's amazing, actually, time to, to live in. And for any technologist, learn coding like, like another language uh, and really start playing with tech and building things. Pitch idea, experiment. Don't be afraid to fail, but learn from every failure that you make. And I can assure you that you're going to be very successful and maybe you're going to be the next uh, Superman or, or rather that's kind of created for us technology that now we think we cannot live without. So uh, you have a chance to influence uh, life of every individual on the planet. Well said. And with that, it's a wrap. Thank you, Tomas. Pleasure. Thank you so much. Bye-bye.